The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, let's get started this morning, Bereans. Appreciate you all being here. Uh, Pardon me? Uh, you know, yeah, I'm going to explain that right now. My wife has been bugging me. Are we starting Peter this week? Are we starting Peter this week? Are we starting Peter this week? And I was. I told her, yeah, I'm starting Peter this week. And that was my plan. Okay? The problem was, Monday's more normally my day off. Well, Monday, I've been dealing with the subject of Melchizedek. So I spent all day Monday just studying Melchizedek, you know. And then I was so excited, I spent all day Tuesday studying it. And I said, i got to do something with Peter. And it went on until Friday morning, and I'm like, I'm in trouble. So I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to teach on what I'm learning right now because I can't, we can't do Peter yet. And, and I, to tell you the truth, I wasn't, this is new to me, okay? This is new material, all right? You've probably never heard this before. Um, I sent it off, I sent it off to a couple of guys that I trust, and they got, they got back to me and said, I agree, I think it's good stuff, so, so therefore we're going to look at it, all right? And if you have Questions, comments, you know, we'll, uh, we'll be glad to listen to those. But uh, like I said, this, this will, chances are really good. This is going to be something you never heard before, uh, you never read before. And so I'm asking you, don't accept it. Don't reject it. Study it. Okay, be a Berean and just study this for yourself and, and see if you agree. And if you do, fine. If not, that's fine too. All right, uh, we're going to begin this morning by looking at Exodus 19. Now, this is Israel after they have left Egypt. They arrive at Mount Sinai, and the Lord says to Moses, Also let the priests who come near to Yahweh consecrate themselves, lest Yahweh break out against them. And Moses said to Yahweh, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourselves warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And Yahweh said to him, Go down and come up, bring Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. Now, does anything strike you as unusual or curious in this text? I have given you a little hint there. Thank you. Very good. Something about the priests. What about the priests? Who are these priests? Think about the timing here. The Aaronic priesthood has not been set up. We haven't even got to the Decalogue yet, okay? But there's some priests here who are told, don't come up the mountain. Now, the Aaronic priesthood doesn't happen until chapter 28. We see this. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. So we're setting up the priesthood here. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar, Ithmir, You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. So, the Aaronic Priesthood, this is chapter 28. We get after the law is given, you know, God gives many more instructions, then He sets up the priesthood, the Aaronic Priesthood here. So, 
who are these priests in Exodus 19? You should have a you should have a clue already. What's the title? <laughs> okay, the title is the Melchizedekian priesthood. All right, the first priest ever mentioned in the Bible is Melchizedek. I don't know how much you know about him, but you're going to learn something about Melchizedek. Um, let's look at this text that Je- Jeff read this morning, Genesis 14:17 to 22. After his return from the defeat of Kedileomer, and with the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevez. This, this is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. Okay? So here's this priest that we meet, Melchizedek. He's called the priest of God Most High. This is El Elyon in the Hebrew. And El Elyon is a universal name for Yahweh. And I'll explain that as we get in here a little more. But, and if you have questions about this being El Elyon being Yahweh, we'll, like I said, we'll see that in a minute. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to Yahweh El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. So here it's Yahweh El Elyon. And if you've been tracking us in the last couple of weeks, you should have a clue of what this is talking about. El is a, the singular form of Elohim. All right, but we said Elohim is used a lot because it's a morphological plural. It's used as a singular, but El is the singular. And El speaks of strength. It speaks of power. It speaks of might. Elion is like a superlative of El and could be translated strongest. So El Elion, therefore, is the strongest strong one or the Most High God. Now, the Bible interprets this to mean El Elion is the possessor or creator of heaven and earth. All right, so now we know who this is. El Elyon knows no bounds. That's the idea of this. This is a supreme God. The authority of the Most High God transcends boundaries between nations. If you remember, God set up these different nations, put gods over them. El Elyon is over everything, okay? The name Yahweh is used more in the sense of localized with Israel. We see that all through the Bible. I am Yahweh, the God of Israel. All right, well, El Elyon is the designation of the chief God, the God over everything of all people. So authority of the Most High God transcends boundaries between heaven and earth, between spirit beings, physical beings, between angels and demons, between humans and animals. His authority and dominion span time and distance alike. There's nothing, there's no one that does not fall under His dominion and jurisdiction. He is El Elyon, the Most High God, the strongest strong one, the possessor, the creator of heaven and earth. Now, the Aaronic priests were priests of Yahweh. That's all they were priests of, okay? I think we understand that. And Yahweh is a covenant name of God. God took the name Yahweh towards, was used mostly towards the nation Israel. But here the author uses El Elyon, Most High God, which is a universal name and included both Jew and Gentile, and it was far broader than the name Yahweh as far as the people that it referred to. 
So whereas the Aaronic priesthood related to just Israel, Melchizedek related to all men. All men. All right. So when it says in Hebrews 6.20, where Yeshua has gone as a forerunner on behalf, on, <clears throat> on behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Yeshua is not just the Messiah of Israel, but of the world. He's falling under this Melchizedekian priesthood. Yeshua is superior to every Levitical priest, every office in that Aaronic priesthood, including the high priest, because he is the first high priest, Melchizedek. His priesthood extends to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. That's the distinction of this priesthood that I want you to understand. It is a universal priesthood. It relates to all men. Okay? Hebrews 7.22 says, This makes Yeshua the guarantor of a better covenant. See, Yeshua doesn't do His work inside an earthly temple like the Aaronic priest does. He does it in the heavenly realities. Why? Because He's a priest of a different order. He's an eternal order, one that has no beginning and no end. So His priesthood extended beyond all national distinctions, this universal priesthood is a very important issue for our understanding. It is continually illustrated in the New Testament, but I think so often we just miss it. Verses like John 1.29. The next day he saw Yeshua coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The word world here means Jew, Gentile, everybody, all nationalities. Again, that's the distinction. They're used to one they used to Israel and the priesthood relating to Israel, and that's all they related to. Now, this is going beyond all that. We also see that in our famous verse in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It's not saying He loved every single person. It's beyond that. It's Jew, Gentile. Because the Jew would have just thought, God loves us and us only. And they had good reason to think that. Well, they didn't have great reason, but they had good reason. <laughs> okay, They just viewed God as their own and it didn't, no one else was involved. All right? This is the idea here. It's, it's worldwide. It's, it's beyond all nations. It's, it's a universal priesthood. Now, <clears throat> he's called Yahweh the Most High God. So with this, this title, we know exactly who Melchizedek was a priest of. He's a priest of Yahweh, El Elyon, the God Most High, who created all things. Notice what Jeremiah says. I like this verse in Jeremiah 10.11. It says, Thus you shall say to them, the gods who did not make heavens and earth shall perish. Now this is not speaking of El Elyon. He's the God who made the heavens and earth. He's the God of gods, the God above all gods. But those other gods, he said, they're going to perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Now the writer of Hebrews expounds on the Genesis text. And in chapter 7 he says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And he said to Abraham, Apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. So Melchizedek comes from two Hebrew words, Melech, which means king, and Sedek, which means righteousness. We could translate Melchizedek as, my king is righteous. And he uses Melchizedek's name and title as a means of pointing to two well-known features of the Messianic ministry, righteousness and peace. 
And righteousness and peace are so obviously features of the work of Christ that their mention alone carries the point. Now, the Septuagint version of Isaiah 6-9 uses both righteousness and peace in its rendering. So the writer of Hebrews says he's the king of Salem. Now, what is Salem? What's he referring to here? Uh, there's a lot of people who want to argue about this, but I think it's, he's talking about Jerusalem, all right, the city of Jerusalem. A thousand years later, after Abraham, David refers to Jerusalem by this title in Psalm 76 too. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. What is Zion? Zion's Jerusalem. So say this is, these are synonyms, okay? He's saying Salem, Zion, the same things. It is clear that Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and peace, ruled over Jerusalem before it was the city of God. And he prefigured the one who ultimately, from the writer's perspective, would rule over Jerusalem who is righteousness and peace, and that refers to Christ. Now, by the way, this is always the biblical order, righteousness and then peace. You can't have peace without righteousness. And this goes for the practical aspects as well as the positional aspects. The only way to have peace with God is through righteousness. Now, if you're thinking that and you think, oh, I better work a little harder, that's not the idea. We become righteous through faith in Christ. All right, In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, for our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so we might become the righteousness of God. Okay? And that's the only way you'll ever enter into heaven, is by having Christ's righteousness. Hebrews 7.3, he says, he is without father or without mother. This is Melchizedek he's talking about. Or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor the end of life, but resembles the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Now what in the world does that mean? This guy's got no father, no mother? Huh? There's no genealogy? Our author here in Hebrews is basing his typology not on what Scripture says about Melchizedek, but on what the Scripture does not say about him. Okay? Now hang on. He's not saying that Melchizedek is a biological anomaly, as though he really didn't have a father or mother. This is not to be taken literally. He wasn't some kind of freak. He wasn't hatched. The scripture, the scripture silence is making him a type of Christ. The silence of Scripture here about him is intentional. The book of Genesis emphasizes genealogy, right? Anytime you're going, they mention somebody, they give a genealogy. All the worshipers of God in the Tanakh. Melchizedek is the only one whose ancestors and whose descendants are not mentioned. There's no record of his birth or death or the end of his priesthood. And what is true typically of Melchizedek is true in reality of the Lord Yeshua. He was made like a son of God, not the son of man, but a son of God, so what is true about Melchizedek from a literary point of view in verse 3 is also true, in fact, about our Lord Yeshua the Christ. So you don't read of the end of Melchizedek's priesthood. This is really true of the anti-type, who's the Lord Yeshua. His priesthood will never end. So he's doing type, anti-type here. All right. So what he is saying is that Melchizedek is a type or foreshadowing 
of Yeshua the Christ on the basis of what Scripture doesn't say about him. So far as the biblical record is concerned, Melchizedek typifies the eternal Son of God. Now, he has no parentage, no pedigree, no birth, no death, but he abides a priest forever. And this is what's true of Melchizedek only insofar as the biblical record is concerned. This is what the Bible says about him. But it's true of Yeshua in fact and in reality. What is true of Melchizedek in a literary point of view as a type is realistically true of our, the anti-type, the Lord Yeshua. So why, why these particular omissions in verse 3? Well, these were all absolutely essential requirements of the Aaronic priesthood. We know that, right? Right. It was all immeasurably important of the Aaronic priesthood to be able to demonstrate who his mother was, who his father was. You know, that they were Israelites, and they were of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron. That was essential. You can't be a priest without that. All right, look at Numbers 16, 39 through 40. So Eleazar, the priest, took the bronze censer, which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar to be a reminder to the people of Israel that no outsider who is not of the descendant of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before Yahweh. That's a priestly function. Nobody does that who's not of Aaron, who's not a Levite. Now the text in Hebrews 7.3 says Melchizedek is without genealogy. This word here is a genealogatos, and it means... Hang on, without genealogy. <laughs> okay, that's the me. It's funny, the other translations put it in other, I can't remember how the other translations, what they say there, but <clears throat> this word is coined by the author of Hebrews. It appears nowhere else in biblical literature or in Greek literature. It's the only time you'll ever read this word, okay? He has no genealogy. Now, the Aaronic priest had to prove their genealogy, all right? The text says of Melchizedek, he continues a priest forever. How long did the Aaronic priesthood serve for? Anybody know? <laughs> he served for a limited time, okay? And let's look at that, all right? Numbers 8, 22 through 25. And after that, the Levites went into the service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as Yahweh had commanded Moses concerning the Levites. So they did to them. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, This applies to the Levites from 25 years old upward. Okay? That's where they started. You're 25. If you're a Levite, son of Aaron, you can become a priest. There's a lot more qualifications, but those are some of them. They shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. And from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. So how long they serve? 25. 25 years, okay. That's it. They began at 25, they had to be done by 50. But he says of Melchizedek, so you're done. If you're a priest, I guess at 50 you're done. Your priesthood is over, okay. The high priest remained a high priest till he died, okay. But for the most priesthood, it was 50, just 25 years. But it says of Melchizedek, he remains a priest continually. That's what the record tells us about him. But we know that Yeshua, the writer of Hebrews tells us, abides continually in reality. All right? He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ's priesthood never, ever 
ends. So the argument of Hebrews is the superiority of the new covenant over the old. He's saying Yeshua is a superior to the Aaronic priesthood. His office, his ordination is based not on a pedigree, but on the dignity of his person. He says, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, not, he's not, not from the right tribe or whatever, but the power of an indestructible life. He's a priest based on the worth of his eternal being. That's what he's saying about Christ. See how great this man, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. So speaking of Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews says, see how great this man was. Why does the scripture argue for the greatness of Melchizedek? Well, he wants us to understand that though Abraham, I mean, in Judaism, the greatest would be Abraham, all right? He's the greatest. They, they just, Abraham was their father. He's the greatest. Melchizedek was greater, greater than Abraham. I'll prove that in a minute, all right? Since Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, then Melchizedek's priesthood must be greater than the priesthood which traces its descent to Abraham. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to put here. Now he says, see how great this man was. The Greek word here for see is theoreo, which is used of one who looks at a thing with interest and attention. Not, you know, not a casual glance, but you're examining this. It'd be used of a general officially reviewing and respecting an army. He's looking over him. He's making sure everything's right. It speaks of a critical, discriminating inspection. They are commanded to consider Melchizedek because it is of the utmost importance that they and we understand his significance. The readers are to consider how great Melchizedek was. Concerning no other man are we told in the Scripture, consider how great this guy was. It's not, it's not common in Scripture to put forth the greatness of man. Okay, But Abraham recognized his greatness, and so the readers are to recognize his greatness also. And it calls Abraham the patriarch. The word patriarch here, patriarches, but comes from patre, meaning father, and arches, meaning first. So Abraham is the first father. In Acts 7, 8, and 9, the sons of Jacob are called patriarchs. And in Acts 2, 29, David is called the patriarch. And this term is used of no one else in the Tanakh or the New Testament. That's it. So David and Jacob's sons sprang from Abraham, thus they preeminently are patriarchs. This word comes uh, <clears throat> last in the Greek text as emphasis. Okay. So the great boast of the Jews was their descendants of Abraham. Now naturally, he was the founder of the Jewish nation, and spiritually... Abraham is the father of all believers. We see that in Romans 4.16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on the grace and be granted to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So Abraham's our father as believers, like he's the Jews' father by birth. Okay, He's someone that their own scriptures... is lifted up. They, they made Abraham a superior. And I said, the Jews thought of him that way. But as great as Abraham was, Melchizedek is greater. Verse 4 says, Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Now the dedication of one tenth of the spoils of war to a deity was practiced among many nations. The Greeks, a lot of other nations did that. The word spoils here is from the Greek word akrothinion, and it means the top of the heap. 
This was used of the choicest spoils of war. From these spoils, an offering would be made to the gods as a thanksgiving for the victory. We just won a battle, we're given a tithe. So Abraham gives a tenth of the very best to Melchizedek, who was priest of El Elyon, the Most High God. In the, in the Levit- Levitical priesthood, what was the point of the tithe? Do what? No, the tithe, well, the, today the tithe is a tax, but yeah, I guess in a way it was a tax because the, the tithe went to support the government, all right? The government was a theocracy, a government ruled by God mediated through the priest. So the, pre, the tithe goes to pay the priest and do those things, you know, because they're running the government, basically. They're running things. So this is, we see the same thing here. We see Melchizedek, Abraham is tithing to Melchizedek. Giving him this because why? Because he's, this is the priesthood, Melchizedekian priesthood, and that's how this priesthood is supported. So Abraham the patriarch paid tithes to Melchizedek, therefore Melchizedek is greater. So let me ask you this. How long did the type of the Melchizedekian priesthood last? The writer of Hebrews says this, he continues a priest forever. All right, I want you to hang on to that. Hebrews 7.12 says this, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So Abram is associated with the priesthood of Melchizedek. And I see no indication of a change of this priesthood until the law is given on Mount Sinai. And I see those priests in Exodus 19 to be those of Melchizedek. Then the law was given, and the priesthood changed. We had a change of priesthood, we had a change of the law. That does not happen until Mount Sinai, and God gives the law. So, I see a transitioning happening from Melchizedek to Aaron, at the beginning of the Exodus. Now, 53 days after the first Passover, all right, they have the, they have the very first Passover. God's pulling them out of Egypt. He tells them, take the lamb, you know, examine it four days, sacrifice the lamb, put the blood on the door. That's Passover. They leave. The very next day they leave. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is deliverance, and they're leaving Egypt. All right, 53 days later, they're at Mount Sinai, and that is Shavuot or what we call Pentecost, okay? Shavuot's the Hebrew term, Pentecost just means 50. And the priests went from a universal priesthood of Melchizedek to now, at Mount Sinai, it became a national priesthood. It's for Israel. And I see the people from Adam to Moses under the priesthood of Melchizedek. You say, wait, Moses is connected with Levitical. We'll get to that, okay? Just hang on. So I think here we have a priesthood. God has been dealing with His people forever, okay? Since He created them, He's been dealing with them. Well, we need a priest, okay? So who's the priesthood? You know, we, I don't know that we think about this. Sometimes we think those people didn't know anything. They don't understand anything. Well, I think they had a priesthood. And I think they had laws. And we can demonstrate that through many things. You know, for example, you're reading Genesis 6 about you know, the flood and the ark, and God says, do what? How many animals are they supposed to take on board that ark? Two of each, right? Two of each of unclean animals. They're supposed to bring seven 
of the clean animals. Well, wait a minute. How they get clean and unclean back in Genesis 6, the law doesn't even support that until, you know, a thousand years later. So what's going on here? See, so I think they had a law. They had a priesthood. This is all... This, now, the Bible doesn't talk much about this at all. But So I'm trying to patch pieces together here, and hopefully I'm not totally out of my mind. But I think Moses to Adam, Adam to Moses, Melchizedek, that's the priesthood they're under. Remember, he remains a priest forever, okay? Genesis 11.1, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Tower of Babel. The whole earth had one language and the same words, okay? There's one language, there's one nation, there's one people, and I believe one priesthood. There's no divisions, there's no different languages, there's no different cultures, it's all one. Then at Babel, because of their sin, the languages are divided and the people are separated into various nations. You with me so far? Verse 8 says, Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Tower of Babel was the height of man's sinfulness. They're building this ziggurat basically to make a name for themselves. They're trying to bring God down to them. And God says, I'm done with you people. I've been arguing and fighting with you people forever. You don't want to follow me. I'm done with you. So when Yahweh dispersed the people, I don't believe that all of them were put under these other gods. I believe that Yahweh always has a remnant. And so there were always some people who stayed with the Melchizedekian priesthood and worshipped the Lord. And that remnant would have continued to worship Yahweh through Melchizedek until the law changed. Melchizedek shows me that God was known to more than Abraham's family. Melchizedek gives us a glimpse, I think, of God's work in people outside of the Bible's storyline. Now, we have further details about this dispersing that took place here in Deuteronomy 32. This is a really important text in understanding this. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, okay, when did that happen? When He divided mankind. When did He divide mankind? Tower of Babel, okay? So Yahweh in effect decided the people, they don't listen to me, they just keep sinning against me, I'm not going to have a relationship with them anymore. I'm going to give them other gods. He's, uh, he's going to start over. He's going to enter into a covenant relationship with a new people that as of yet does not exist. Okay? It says, so he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So he, he took his piece, I'm going to take you, you're over here. You're going to be Egyptians. Okay? You're going to speak Egyptian. Your God is going to be Ra. And then he took other people and put them over here and put a God over them. So now everybody, they can't talk to each other. They're different cultures. They're different languages. They're serving different gods. All right? It says, but Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, and his allotted inheritance. So he's saying, I'm choosing Abraham to be my people. I'll be their God. So all these nations are placed under the authority of the members of Yahweh's divine council. He apportioned or he handed out the nations, different sons of God. And we're told God allotted the gods of those nations. God decreed in wake of Babel that these other nations he had forsaken would have other gods besides him to worship. The other nations were assigned these lesser gods as a judgment of the Most High, Yahweh. At Babel, the people are divided. They're put under, under, under other gods. But what about those who weren't rebelling? You know, all the people weren't evil. God, had a rem- God always has a remnant. And there were some people that are still worshiping Yahweh. The most of them weren't. So what happened to them? I think they may have continued just to follow the priesthood of Melchizedek and to worship God. And God was declaring to them at Babel, if you don't want to obey me, 
I'm not interested in being your God. I'll match you up with some other God. So those disinherited would be in spiritual bondage to these different corrupt sons of God. Yahweh disinherited the nations and in the very next chapter, chapter 12 of Genesis, He calls Abraham out of Mesopotamia. And that's interesting because that's where the heart of the rebellion was. God calls him right out of that place. I'm calling Abraham. Now the, the pseudepigrapha tells us that Abraham worshipped God since he was three. Was that true? I don't know. God chose this man, and you know, that's, what, that's what we know about him from other texts. So what, so what was the end of the Melchizedek, what was the end of the Melchizedekian priesthood? Okay. <clears throat> no Aaronic priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood didn't start for 430 years after God called Abraham. So what did they do for 430 years? We have no priest, we have no system, we got nothing. What, what, what did they do? That's not the end. It's not the end of the Melchizedekian priesthood when God calls Abraham. I, I, don't, I don't believe it was, okay? It went on for 430 years. Look at uh, Galatians 3, 16 and 17. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. That, that's Abraham and Christ. Christ is the offspring of Abraham. It does not say and of offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, your offspring, who is Christ. So the promise is to Abraham and it's to Christ. The promise is to us. Why? Because we're in Christ. We believe in Christ, all right? That is what I mean. He said, the law, which came 430 years afterward, after the call of Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So from Abraham's departing from Ur of the Chaldea into the departing of the children of Israel from Egypt, when they left Egypt, they're coming free from Egypt, was 430 years. Now from the calling of Abraham to the family of Jacob entering Egypt was about 110 years. So Israel is in Egypt for about 220 years. So I see them being under Melchizedekian priesthood all this time, even while they're in Egypt. They're not worshiping these other, using these other priests. They're not worshiping Ra. They're worshiping Yeshua, El Elyon, through the Melchizedekian priesthood. There's no change in priesthood at that time, even though they're in Egypt. Until the law was given, and that was established. So if, if, if we have to have new law and a new priesthood, we haven't arrived at that yet, so why would Melchizedek, who is supposed to remain a priest forever, have changed? Other than Melchizedekian priesthood, we have no priest mentioned in Scripture until Joseph gets to Egypt, which is about 100 years later. Okay, So again, we, we move fast forward 100 years, and then we have this... Uh, we, we have this other priesthood. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah. And he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So we already have uh, <coughs> this priest of On. Now Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So who is this priest? Well, this would refer to a priest who was to the people of On, all right? And On was also called Heliopolis, uh, which is an important religious cultural center in Egypt. It's located in modern-day Cairo. The city was dedicated to the worship of the sun god, Ra, and housed important religious institutions and temples. 
So about a century after Babel, we see Egyptians who have a different language and a different culture worshiping a different God. And they have priests of Ra. Okay, so that's, that's their priesthood. I don't believe the believers of God in Egypt are worshiping Ra. They're sticking with El Elyon, and they are worshiping through Melchizedek. The next mention of priests is in Exodus 3.1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So he's a priest of Midian. Not, not, Midian's not a god. Midian's a, it's a city. He's, he's the priest of these people in this city. All right. Now the Midianites were descended from Abraham, making them Semites. Now the Apocrypha states that at one time Jethro was a religious advisor to Pharaoh. I don't know if that's true or not. Eventually, it says Jethro studied from the disciples of Shem, who they think was also Melchizedek. But what's important here is what the Bible has to say. And from Jethro's confession, he was a priest of Melchizedek because he's worshiping El Elyon. Look at Exodus 18, 10 through 12. Jethro said, blessed be Yahweh. Oh, so he's, he's not worshiping some foreign pagan god. He's worshiping Yahweh. Who delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. He's El Elyon. Okay? Because of this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Uh, to God. So he's, he's offering sacrifices up to God, to Yahweh, El Elyon. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, father-in-law, before God. So, we see no indication that there was ever an end of the Melchizedekian priesthood. I assume that it continued in effect until the Aaronic priesthood was initiated. Again, people are serving God. How are they doing this? They need a priesthood. They, they have one, okay? It's Melchizedek. Now, the Aaronic priesthood began at the Feast of Shavuot. And it's really important that we see this feast concept here, all right? Shavuot happened 53 days after Passover, the very first Passover in Egypt. They're leaving Egypt, okay? And it ended, I believe, on the true Passover that took place in AD 30, all right? So the Passover we see in Acts chapter 2, that's the end of the priesthood. So the priesthood starts at Shavuot, which is Pentecost, the first Pentecost. It ends in Acts 2 at that. Now, what replaced the Aaronic priesthood at that time, at the, at the true Passover in Acts 2? It was the Melchizedekian priesthood. Look at Hebrews 5, 5, and 6. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but he was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so this is Christ's priesthood. It's superior. It goes on in, in chapter 6, 19 and 20 to say, We have this a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Yeshua has gone as a forerunner in our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the priesthood of Christ, which I believe started on Pentecost, ended the Aaronic priesthood on Pentecost. Now let's back up to the original Pentecost 
and see this. Exodus 19, 18 and 19. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So Moses goes up on the mountain alone. As he nears the top, he hears this mighty voice announce the Ten Commandments. All right? No date is actually given in about when the Decalogue was provided here. It, we, the Bible doesn't give us a date. But if you ask any observant Israelite concerning the event, they're going to tell you it was celebrated 50 days from the Feast of First Fruits. That is Shavuot, that is Pentecost. So a very notable historical event happened on the very first Shavuot after they left Egypt, and that was the giving of the Ten Commandments. Israel came to Mount Sinai on the third day of the third month, according to Exodus 19.1, and Yahweh visited the people three days later in Exodus 19, 10-17. Therefore, the law was given by God on the sixth day of the third month of the biblical religious calendar, which is the month Sivan. Now, this day is exactly 50 days from the crossing of the Red Sea. So, Shavuot is called the season of the giving of Torah in Hebrew. Okay, so they're at the mountain. They're receiving the law of God. This is Shavuot. We call it Pentecost. Pentecost is Greek. It means 50. Shavuot is the feast that they're celebrating here. And it's the feast of giving the law. Now, Shavuot at Mount Sinai is sometimes considered the day on which Jerusalem was born. And that totally makes sense. They're given the law. They're entering into a covenant with God on this Shavuot. All right? Now, think about that. Because at Pentecost in Acts 2, what's happening? This is the church is born. And the church is given the law of God. All right? So, from Adam to Moses, I believe God's people were under the priesthood of Melchizedek. Then, in the 40-year Exodus period, the priesthood shifted. Right at the very beginning of that 40 years, they're given the law of God, and then they got a 40-year transition. The priesthood continued, I believe, until the birth of the church on Pentecost, where it shifted to the everlasting priesthood of Melchizedek. So between the two priests of Melchizedek, who was a type, and the anti-type, we have Israel and the Aaronic priesthood. So Old Covenant Israel, listen to me, is bracketed by two transition periods, by two 40-year periods. And Israel is bracketed by those. All right, so we have a universal priesthood of Melchizedek from the beginning of time until Israel is established at Mount Sinai. Then we have a national priesthood that runs from that first transition period when the law is given to the last Pentecost that happens in Acts 2. And then we go back to an everlasting priesthood in Acts chapter 2. So you know how dispensationalists say that the church is a parenthesis? I think Israel's a parenthesis. Okay? And God dealt with mankind after this 40 years He's dealing with Israel. That stops in 40 years we're in the church. Okay, so two 40-year periods bracket the existence of Israel and the priesthood of Israel. Now, I said that at Pentecost in Acts 2, things change. And I think you know that, but let's look at how they changed when they received the new priesthood at that time. Okay? 
Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, this is the same as Shavuot, the same day, okay? This is a feast of Israel, Pentecost. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now the Scripture declared that the annual feast, including Pentecost, was given for the purpose of sacrifice. Let's go back to Leviticus 23, where it lists all seven feasts in order. These are the appointed feasts of Yahweh, which you shall proclaim at times of holy convocation. Now, why? Why are they doing this? For presenting to Yahweh food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, drink offerings, each on his proper day. This is, this is a priest, these are all priestly acts. The priest is doing this to point to Christ, to picture to Christ. They're offering up, offering up these sacrifices. Now, the observance of Pentecost itself is participation in a priestly service. The priest is involved doing this. But in Acts 2, we don't find any mention of presenting typical offerings or animal sacrifices or anything else which is part of the typical priestly law. We don't see any of that happening. What we do see at the third hour, remember Peter said, we're not drunk, why? It's the third hour of the day. Uh, that's not a really good argument, okay? People get drunk a lot earlier than that. But, you know, he said, not normally, you know, people don't get drunk. So it's the third hour. The third and the ninth hour were the times of sacrifice in Israel. Okay, so this is happening at the third hour. Josephus talks a lot about that being the third and ninth hour of, of sacrifice. It says, and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them, and they rested on each one of them. All right, here's what's, here's what's happening. They're not offering up these different sacrifices, but the Spirit comes upon them, and we have fire from heaven. And this fire, I believe, signaled acceptance of certain sacrifices in the Old Covenant. We can go back to, to the text in the Old Covenant. We can see this, um, Leviticus 9.24. And fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering, and the pieces of fat on the altar all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is the acceptance of it. The fire comes down, the offering is being accepted. Well, at Pentecost, we see the fire coming down and appearing on them. Now we see the acceptance of believers on the day of Pentecost. There's no sacrifice. We're not, we don't talk about that. Nothing's mentioned about that. Pentecost was indicated by the symbol. Okay, the fire came down and the people are accepted. Now, notice what Paul says in Romans 15, 15 and 16. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Yeshua to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, offering the Gentiles, offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul says he's in priestly service. Was Paul a priest? Of what order is he a priest? He says he's a priest. Of what order? Could Paul be a Levitical priest? What tribe was Paul from? Benjamin. He can't be a priest. He can be a priest of Melchizedek. Can he? He says he's a priest. I'm in priestly service. Well, we know that can't be the Aaronic priesthood. Because that he can't be in that. Alright? He's, he's a priest in the likeness and in connection with Christ, who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Now, since Christ is high priest after Melchizedek, then this is the only priesthood in which Paul could have been participated in. Because if he was under the Levitical order, if he's saying, I'm a priest, of, he'd be under a death sentence. Because he can't do that. But Paul was not under the Levitical priesthood. He was in the antitypical priesthood of Christ. The order under the order of Melchizedek. And instead of offering priestly rites, instead of offering up grain and drinks and animals, listen, Paul's offering up Gentiles as sacrifices to God. They're not killing them, they're not putting them to death, but they're sacrifices. This is a priesthood of Melchizedek. It's offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. And Paul was not the only one to talk about this. Look what Peter says. We'll get here someday. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Okay, he's telling the believers, you're a holy priesthood. You're not Levitical priests. Okay, you can't do that. But you're in the priesthood of Melchizedek. And you're offering up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Yeshua the Christ. People, we are in a priesthood. We are priests. And we are offer up sacrifice. And the author of Hebrews says this, Through Him, then, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. What does His name mean? Character. Acknowledging the character of God. We're we're giving a sacrifice of praise to God by acknowledging His character. Who He is, in essence. And He says, "Do do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. As part of the Melchizedekian priesthood, we are offering up sacrifices of praise to God. And when we do good and when we share, we're offering up sacrifices to God. These are the sacrifices, the Bible says, that are pleasing to God. And it's under this Melchizedekian priesthood that never ends. It's eternal. It's unchangeable. All this language is that of sacrifice and priesthood, and yet no one can deny that it's being used in a way which clearly different from the Aaronic order. If these New Testament writers were under the Levitical system, they'd be breaking the law. They'd be under the death sentence. But since they're under a different priesthood, since Pentecost, their priestly activity was to be done in connection with the heavenly temple, and therefore was not centered around the temple in Jerusalem. It was a heavenly temple. It was the true temple. And they're offering up sacrifices to God. No more grain and killing animals. We're offering up Gentiles. We're offering up people to become believers in Christ through this priesthood. Listen, Christ is the antitype of Melchizedek. And the priesthood of Christ is a universal priesthood. So important. Aaronic priesthood is national. It's for Jews. Aaronic priesthood is universal. It's for the world. And this we see all through the New Testament, but we miss it. We don't understand this. Now, personally, if, if I'm right, and it's up to you to make decision there on that, okay, with a little research, I think this view destroys the position of Israel only. 
That's, that's, I always thought it was a stupid position. The Bible's written to Israel and Israel only. You understand now, Israel's a parenthesis. God dealt with humankind before. He comes back to the priesthood of Christ and he deals with national. It's everybody. It's not located to just one nation. It's a universal thing. Melchizedekian priesthood is a universal priesthood. That destroys Israel. That's rubbish. Put that away. Get rid of that, okay? But I believe it also damages this system called covenant creation, okay? They view the first 11 chapters all about Israel. Got nothing to do. They got Israel all the way back to Adam. And, and the, the connections they make are huge leaps. Okay? Huge leaps. All right? It's a universal priesthood from Adam until the Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek is a, a priest unto God, Elion Most High. He's a type of the eternal priesthood of Christ. So he's not national, he's universal. You know, as the dispensationalists say, the church is a parenthesis. No. It seems to me that Israel's a parenthesis. And God used Israel to point us to Christ. Okay? And now, once Christ came and died, Pentecost came, we move into this priesthood where we are all priests and we're offering up these beautiful sacrifices to God. We're bringing glory to God by the things that we say, by the fruit of our mouths. It's amazing. It's incredible. I think there's a lot we need to understand about Melchizedek. And I think the more you understand Melchizedek, the more you're going to understand how secure you are in God and what a blessing we have today to be part of this priesthood, to be priests, to be offering up sacrifices. So I'm thinking we're going to come back next week and deal more with Melchizedek try to tie this together a little bit more. So that's what I'm thinking right now, okay? <laughs> All right, so you, like I said, you evaluate this. You, you, uh, you make up your mind. Um, I, on, on Friday morning, I'm like, oh, Lord, it, what do I do? You know, this is all I've been studying all week. I can't get away from this. It's on my mind. I'm going to bed thinking about it, waking up thinking about it. So I, I put it all together. I've been taking notes. I've kind of slammed everything together, and I sent it off to a couple people, and I said, tell me what you think. They came back and said, man, that's awesome. I never heard of that before. I said, no, that's because I never heard of it before either. You know, so, but, so this is where I'm at with this, and I'm open to what you have to say about it. You see something different. Um, tell me what you're seeing. Tell me where I'm wrong. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, I'm excited about this, and Lord, your word is so deep, Father. It is so deep. It's unfathomable. We just keep going and going and learning more. And it's, to me, it's so exciting, Father. Lord, it's so exciting to learn more and more about you every day. Thank you for the truth you give us. Thank you for the word. Lord, I just pray that we would truly be Bereans. We would search the Bible to see if these things are so. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments. Yeah, Mike. Uh, excited what we're learning here. Um, excited how God's working through you to see this. And uh, I mean, you pointed out this morning that every word counts in the Bible. I mean, you pointed out several places about priests. And we never, when we read these words in the Bible, we don't think. Because we know the rest of the story, right? We don't think of We know Aaron's priest, so we just read that back in because, and we don't stop to think, wait a minute, this is out of order. <laughs> I remember that happened to me several years ago when I'm reading Genesis 6 and I'm like, clean and unclean animals. Wait a minute. Right. 
right? Mm-hmm. How do they get this? You know, obviously, right. there's so much mm-hmm. that, that's not filled in there in the text that we have to fill in. So, right. Um, I, I have questions. Sure. Uh, I'm just like throwing I, out questions. I got spe- questions too. Speculate. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we have the answer, but just throw it back to you. Um, so, if Melchizedek was a priest forever, this is way back then. Um, then was he still continuing to be a priest? There was still a covenant that was greater than the Israel covenant that continued in some way, or was it sort of like operative on pause? And well, and there, there's, like you said, there's there's so many questions, but you know, God called Abraham, and I think the Melchizedek's operating under Abraham here until the law is given. Then, the, you know, Hebrew said there's a change of priesthood when the laws, when there's a change of the law. So the law changed there for Israel for about 1,600 years, and they are worshiping under the Levitical. But what's all picture to point us to Christ. So we're all going back to Melchizedekian. I don't even like to use that term, go back, because we have type. All right, that's a type. God is showing us this through type, and then we have the anti-type, who's the real one. Okay, who really has no mother and father, who is you know. But it never ended. Son of God, the Melchizedekian priesthood. But it never ended. Well. In the first place. I think it again when when the writer of Hebrews is saying it's without it's a eternal he's talking about the anti-type the type is a picture okay, so I think the Melchizedek and priesthood did end when Aaron took over because now we have a change of law the type ended the type ended right okay. and, we're, and we're waiting for the anti-type and then when okay. the anti-type Christ came on scene the forever history. right exactly Christ see the the things that are said about Melchizedek or things like I said that are not said about him are said because he, we're pointing to Christ, okay? Christ says the genealogy, this is pointing to the future Melchizedekian king, and Christ, yeah, Melchizedek was a king and a high priest, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. Nobody else was that, right. okay, other than Christ, okay? So there's, like I said, there's, pray for me this week, I'm going to try to put some more of this together to try to make this make a, maybe a little more sense. One more question. Okay, go ahead. Um, so what kind of function as a priest do you think he would, like a priest is, Someone who mediates for people between God and man, uh, and then he represents God to man. So, what what do you think is the Melchizedek as a priest? What was his function as a priest? That's a good question. Other than he was just functioning like any other priest, like you said, being a mediator between man and God, offering sacrifices. We don't hear about this in the scripture. Again, Melchizedek is mentioned twice in the Tanakh. Okay, Genesis 14. Where else? Anybody know? Psalm 110, where it says, You're a priest forever after the order of the most quoted psalm from the Tanakh, Psalm 110, talks about Melchizedek. So, yeah, there's a lot of questions we don't know. What was he doing? How how were the people? How many different priests were in this priesthood? What, you know, we don't we don't know. You know, again, the Bible just seems so quiet on this. And because the Bible's quiet on it, you know, the mind just goes, Well, nothing happened during that time. No, I don't believe that. I mean, we see great things happening during that time, you know. Time, the things that the scripture tells us about, but understanding you know the scriptural principle that God always has a remnant, then there's got to be people we know. You know, Enoch walked with God. Okay, he walked with God. He was in fellowship with God. Such beautiful fellowship. God said, "Come on, get up here." Mm-hmm. And I know people disagree with me. I don't care. I don't care. Listen, God said, "I'm having such wonderful fellowship with you. I'm going to kill you. Boom, get out of here." Wait a minute. If I'm having wonderful fellowship, I don't want it to end. What do I do? I'm going to go with you or bring you to me, and that's what I'm going to do. Now, I know the Bible says, well, people didn't go to heaven, you know, before. Well, listen, God can make any exception he wants to. And if he's having fun time with you and you're fellowshipping that good with you, come on, let me bring you in here, okay? Because when was Christ sacrificed? 
before the foundation of the world, right? In the mind of God. God's not bound by time, okay? People, let me just tell you this. <laughs> we have so much to learn that it isn't even funny, okay? <laughs> we think we know stuff, and I don't know that we really do. David? So Melchizedek is mentioned in chapter 14, but like you were mentioning, you know, the clean and unclean beast, and even as far back as Cain and Abel. Right, they yes. Knew that you know, they knew what was acceptable for sacrifice, and Cain disobeyed God and was punished for it. Right. So his priesthood even extends prior to his appearance. I would say I yes. Guess. I mean, again, that and again, there's we don't have text to tell us this, right. but yeah, I think that I think as long as the men are worshiping God, they're worshiping through a priesthood. Okay. Yeah, because they knew obviously there was some type of order. Right. I think I believe there was a law. We don't know about it, but we see glimpses of it. And we see here now a, a priest comes on the scene. It's funny because he comes on right after God calls Abraham. Boom, Abraham meets him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then so, yes, I think this priesthood, it was eternal through that whole time. Okay. Do you think Adam could have been the first, like, priest in the order? He could have been. I mean, I, you know, the problem was, you know, he sinned and got kicked out. Okay. You know, just like Israel sinned and got kicked out of the land. He sinned, got kicked out of the land. You know, and the whole idea is to bring us back into the land because the land represents fellowship with God, the presence of God. So I, I don't know. I, you know, it depends on what the, I think the pseudepigrapher says he, he was seven years before he fell. That, I like that. Mm. might not be true, but I like that. You know, because you read the Bible, you think God made him, boom, the next day he falls. You know, I'm like, wow, mm. dude, you sure didn't make it too long. But if he lasted seven years, I'm like, all right, you did a little bit, buddy. You know, <laughs> you obeyed God for a little bit. You know, that's cool to know. So, yeah, and during that time, he could have been. I'm sure he was a priest, you know, offering up sacrifices to God. He was supposed mm. to represent God to creation, bring God's dominion into the earth. He was kind of a king. Yeah. But he was created in his image. So yeah, he was created he was in his image, just like us. Do you have a question, Gary? Hundreds. <laughs> uh, I will say that uh, based on today's message and my quick, shallow understanding of it, it seems like you have elevated the Christian life again. Well, if it's elevated, that's that's absolutely amazing. I mean, I mean, like I said. We're scratching the surface on this. Let me let me tell you what, what happened here. After the Tower of Babel, a friend of mine lives in Florida. We've known each other for a long time, studied together a long time. Mm -hmm. The problem is he's always several steps ahead of me, okay, as far as understanding. You know, he doesn't go to church. He doesn't read commentaries. He just reads the Bible, and he gets with God and spends time with him. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he calls me after the Tower of Babel. He mm -hmm. said, what about Melchizedek? And I'm saying, what about I know who he is. What about? I think he's important. I'm like, okay, that was the end of that. Mm -hmm. So for days, weeks, I'm thinking about Melchizedek. How's it Melchizedek? So I'm looking at Melchizedek. So then I call him back. Say, okay, give me some more insight. What are you thinking about here in Melchizedek? So we we talked for a while and shared some things, and I just kept getting more and more excited. And I think there's more and more to see here. He's such a predominant figure in Hebrews. He's stressing this so bad in Hebrews. This Melchizedek. Okay, this is the priesthood that Christ is under. And I think the more we understand this the better off we're going to be, okay? Now, here's what's funny. Tim Martin says Melchizedek was a priest of the Old Covenant. Hmm. How many Old Covenants are there? Was there more than one Old Covenant? The Old Covenant was under the Levitical priesthood, weren't they? So how could Melchizedek be under... 
That, that's totally... But that's what covenant creationism does. They make large leaps. Okay? See, in Genesis, the, the word divide is used. God divided the waters above from the waters below. So they take the word divide. Now it's used over here in Exodus, in the temple. So Genesis 1 is about the temple. Well, that word is used 40 other times in other places. It's just a, it's simply a word divide. It's a casual word. Not anything important. But that's the leaps they take. Okay? And we joke a lot. We say you need a secret decoder wing to figure out what they're talking about. Because people are trees. Trees are people, huh? There's parallels. Well, yeah, there Genesis is. But I mean, you don't jump and say... Describing the earth as it's... So what, what they're doing is saying Genesis 1 is about not, not about creation at all. Matter of fact, you can't nail them down to anywhere in the scripture does God say he created this earth? They can't answer you. Okay? Yes, there is parallels there. Okay? But to say that Genesis 1 is all about, you know, covenant, it has nothing to do with God creating anything, and Adam's not even the first man. He's the first covenant man. Now, it doesn't talk about covenant at all in chapter 1, but he's the first covenant man. Where does that, where does that nonsense come from? Where are all these other people doing out there? You know? God says, it just, okay, don't give me... All right, we'll let that go. Okay. <laughs> Any other questions here? I got. Seems like I got some online here. Let me deal with them. Norm says, uh, "Thanking you for the passion for God's word to feed us." By the way, I've been cheating on reading God's word. I've been letting Alexander Scorby do it for me. <laughs> After all, faith comes by hearing. <laughs> That's good enough. And listen, let me tell you, what I really enjoy doing is I put the audio on and I read while I'm listening. So I'm getting it from both, you know, and I, I just, I really, I really enjoy that. Thanks, Norm. Appreciate your input there. Jan in Florida, while listening, I thought, this destroys covenant creation. And then you sure enough said it too. Thank you, Jan. I appreciate your understanding and input. I, I've seen your, your comments on some of the Facebook uh, controversies there, and you can see you understand what you're talking about. Thanks, Jan. I, I appreciate that. Okay, Gary and Chris from PA. What a great blessing this is today. I was reading about this this week. I had no idea you would expound on this today. This is why there can never be a coming temple. Yes, exactly. And all the red heifer fantasy, crisis high priest forever, unchangeable. You know, and that's the thing. I was thinking about this too. You know, this, the dispensationalists, we're going back to the temple. We're going to build this. Christ's priesthood came on the scene at Pentecost. That's it. We're not going back to anything. In the 40 years that the church was being developed and the old covenant was fading away and it's gone at AD 70. And Christ is a priesthood forever. There's no other priest. There's no, we're not coming back and offering sacrifices. When I was a dispensationalist, I thought this is the dumbest thing in the world that we're going back to sacrifices. Mm -hmm. Sacrifices were pictures of Christ. You have Christ and you still, you know, want the picture. And, so, and I thought about that while I was at sea because I had pictures of my wife all over the roof of my bunk at sea, look, you know, missing her. And I got home and now she's here and I'm with her and I still had pictures all over her and I'd go in and look at them. No, stupid. I have her. I don't need the picture anymore. Okay? Once you have the reality, you don't need the picture. Junior! Good message, Pastor Dave. I appreciate the clarification in in Job. Now we understand where he got the priestly office while while consecrating children and offering burnt offerings. Yeah, thank you. That's that makes sense too. Like I said, there's you, you guys are going to probably tie a lot of things together that I haven't even thought of yet. Also, all right. When did Melchizedek first appear? Well, in Scripture, in, in the text we read in Genesis fourteen seventeen, 
that's when he first appears in Scripture. Okay, so, but that's that's all we know about that. He, I believe, the priesthood was in effect a whole long time. What are the idea of Melchizedek being a pre-incarnate Yeshua? Yes, that's an idea that people cast around. I don't throw that around. I don't think that's true because Hebrews tells us a priest has to come from man. He's representing man. He has to be a man. Okay, and so I, I we see that in Hebrews. So I, 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 at one time I did I think hold to that view, but you know he says he's like it's not he's like the Son of God, not is the Son of God. So I think there's a, a difference there. This is a human peace priest who's a type. That's how I understand it. Okay, he's a type. Dean from California. Most folks worship a God that's way too small. <laughs> That's true. Most people worship a God they've created in their own mind, in their own image, so they can control them. That's not the God of the Bible. Thank you, Dean. You're right. I mean, we, we have to... The more we get into the text and the more we see who God is and what He's done, it's just, you know, it's absolutely incredible. And this is what blows my mind, that if you have a clue of how great your God is, your God's given you a book to tell you all about Himself and all about what He wants from you, and most Christians don't ever read it. I think that's I think that's sick. I really do. You know, we, we listen to other people tell us what this says and what it means, and we never spend any time in it. And I think if we believe there's a God who empowers us by His Spirit, we could get on our face before Him and cry out to Him and, and study. Like Proverbs says, when you search for me, ask for silver, and you dig for me, ask for gold, then you'll understand. Okay, we don't dig, we don't study, we don't work. We just spoon-feed us. That's our culture. And it's sad, people. I mean, how do you call yourself a Christian and not read the Word of God? Okay, that's my exhortation for today. I'll shut up and move on. <laughs> if we were to have the faith of Abraham, we have the priests of Abraham. Well, <clears throat> yeah, we, we are under that priesthood. That is an eternal, a mighty... And again, when you understand the priest's function and, and all that he does in Christ, our high priest is before God in heaven for us, his people. It is amazing. Ann and I have been reading the Bible through without commentary and saw priests like Jethro and Melchizedek sacrifices and law before the law of Moses. Melchizedek was a priest and a king and was over Abraham. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I mean. If you spend time reading the Bible and thinking while you're reading, you're like, hey, what is this guy doing here? But again, you probably already read it. You know about the priest of Aaron, so you read that and it's not a big deal. You just think priest Aaron and you don't even look at where it's at and then you just keep going on, you know? Yeah. So we see it and it's like, wow. It seems Melchizedekian priesthood may have been put on hold when the Israelites were turned over to worship a host of heaven. Acts 7.42. No? Um, no, I, I think the Melchizedekian, as I said, I think the Melchizedekian priesthood, the type, stopped when Levitical priests were ordained, when God set up Israel, and God entered into a covenant with Israel. Okay, And then that, that priesthood ended in Pentecost. So I don't think it was put on hold. I think, you know, it was just, like I said, brackets this whole concept of Israel. Great message today. We are coming out in May and we'll visit. Hope we can share a meal together in fellowship. You have connected a lot of dots today before Israel. Praise God. Well, thank you, Nathan. I appreciate that. Why don't you come out in April and uh, come to our conference and meet a whole lot of people? Okay. Again, people, 13 spots left. Get your, you better get signed up. If Adam was seven years before removed, 
Were they being fruitful as commanded? Otherwise, a common violation. I don't know. Again, the Bible doesn't. The Bible makes it sound like you know God created Abraham. Here's a command. Boom. The next day he fell. So no. I, and the pseudepigrapha has information on that. What they did. And I'm not familiar with it offhand, but you can get a lot of. And again, I you don't have to buy everything you read in there. Just understand this is the culture of the New Testament. The people who are writing the New Testament knew these writings, and uh, some of them they. Put right into scripture. Okay. We good? <laughs> All right. Pray for me this week. I'm going to try to get into Melchizedek a little more and develop this and see if we can uh, see what we come up with. But I think you got the general picture anyway, at least what I'm thinking. And uh, so, <clears throat> is it right? Is it true? Please study and make a decision. All right.